This is a story about fame, isolation, depression, alcohol, wanting to die, and wanting to live. Do I call you D or do I call you Daryl? What's best? You could call me Daryl. You could call me D. You could call me Daryl Mac. You could call me DMC. Whatever you want to call me. I'm so glad you answered that way. That was my secret hope. the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. My guest on this episode is a recovering alcoholic. He's dealt with depression and anxiety. He's been suicidal. And he's part of one of the most successful and influential hip-hop groups of all time. Yo, what's up? This is DMC and the place to be coming at you from Quad Studios in the NYC, New York City, baby. Daryl McDaniels is the DMC in Run DMC. D and Joseph Run Simmons rapping, Jam Master J on the turntables. They started in Queens in 1983 and went on to make platinum records, cover of Rolling Stone, played Live Aid. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Their sound wasn't flashy, sparse, driving beats, powerful, literate vocals with the two rappers overlapping relentlessly. Sounded a lot like hard rock. I'm the king of rock. There is none higher. MCs call me The video for their collaboration with Aerosmith features a literal wall between rock and rap being smashed through. They were even heavy when rapping about shoes. Christmas. It's Christmas time in Hollis, Queens. Mom's cooking chicken in collard greens. Or about people who just talk too much. Big Mac, you talk too much. Never shut up. But being rich and famous is not a prevention or cure for mental health problems. And looking and sounding powerful is not a guarantee that someone feels that way. Before he was DMC, he was a quiet kid named Daryl in a middle-class section of Queens, raised by Byford and Banna McDaniels. Young Daryl was a good student, liked music, but loved comic books. Saw himself in them. You wouldn't think Peter Parker Spider-Man. You wouldn't think Clark Kent was Superman. We all awkward. And, and, and that was something that I could relate to, because when I was a kid growing up in Queens— it seemed like if you wasn't in a gang, if you wasn't selling drugs, if you wasn't a thug, and if you wasn't playing hooky, you wasn't cool. So for me, I saw in those comic books people that were like me that didn't exist in this real world, although they did exist, but they were afraid to expose themselves. So hip-hop and rock and roll allowed me to use my weaknesses as a superpower, I'm DMC in a place to be. I wear these glasses so I can see. You know what I'm saying? I got teased, bullied, and picked on because I wore glasses. And when I was a kid, you know what I'm saying? Hey, four eyes. Hey, Spectre. Hey, but now. So mentally and emotionally growing up was fucking traumatic. It was crazy for me. The music he liked? Well, it had more acoustic guitars than you might expect. 
I care nothing about black music because soul music at the time was about girls. I ain't care about no girls. And then, you know, outside of Marvin Gaye doing what's going on, it was the folk, folk, folk rock and the rock singers singing about um, politics and presidents and society and liberation, stuff that I could relate to because I was a kid. I was a straight-A student. So when I heard Fogarty and Dylan and Neil Young, it was like being in social studies class. He also loved, and this comes up in a lot of interviews, Harry Chapin. You know, this guy. And the cats in the cradle and the shoes This was a different world than his childhood friend Joe Simmons lived in. Run, his brother was Russell Simmons, so Run saw hip-hop growing in his living room. I'm talking about before Rap is the Light. Run saw the hip-hop business in his living room. Russell was a party promoter. He was managing Curtis Blow. He was hiring Flash, Bambada. He was hiring all the DJs and the MCs at that time to come play at his parties, and he would pay them at the end of the night. So Run saw the business of it in his living room. Russell Simmons would go on to be Run DMC's manager and one of the biggest moguls in the hip-hop business. And from the start, his brother Joe wanted into that business. Daryl agreed to help Joe perform the raps they'd been writing, and he called upon his comic book influences. Because it was fun that way. If I do this, I'm going to pretend to be the most powerful entity in the hip-hop universe. (laughs) So I transformed my old man at school kid, Daryl McDaniels. It's no longer Daryl McDaniels when he get on the mic. When he gets on the mic, he transforms into the devastating mic-controlling king of rock. So it was all make-believe for me in my room in my basement that I didn't let that go when I got on records. So they join up with their friend Jason Mizell. Daryl becomes DMC. Joe becomes Run, Jason is Jam Master Jay. But to D, at this point, rap's a hobby, not a career. Run had been bugging Russell for years to help him put out a record, and when Russell finally said okay, Daryl's phone rang. Yo, D, remember four years ago when I said if I ever make a record, I'm putting I was like, yeah, well, grab your rhyme book. We go in the studio. So we went and we laid um, Suckham Season, it's like that, in August of 82, I get in school. He's calling me every day, Russell shopping, Russell shopping. Then he calls me and says, Russell got us a record deal. We're on Profile Records. And I'm like, okay, cool. So we had to go to, we had to take the train to the city to go to the lawyer's office and sign papers, whatever, whatever. That shit wasn't something that I remembered because my main concern is I'm starting St. John's, you know, in September, the semester. So he's calling me, telling me everything going on with the record. And he tells me we got a record deal. I'm sitting in the Rathskeller. The Rathskeller was a bar on the St. John's University campus. Drinking age was 18. Over the, um, the intercom in the, inside the lunchroom at St. John's University, the DJ throws on um, Sucker MCs. And the whole lunchroom gets up and starts dancing to it. <laughs> and they saw him saying, yo, who are these guys? Where are these guys from? Yo, whatever it is, this is the best hip-hop that we ever heard, whatever, whatever. So I look up, and I just look at them, and I say to myself, oh, that ain't going to last. <laughs> Not knowing what was about to happen. So that was the first semester. Second semester, Joe calls, yo, we got a show in North Carolina. Pack your bags. We going on the road. I took a leave of absence from St. John's and been absent ever since. But remember, young Daryl is a bookish introvert. 
He would have been fine just writing and recording raps and not performing. But his extroverted friends, Run and Jay, were really excited about hitting the stage. To support their needs, I thought outside of myself, I need something else. I don't need just to pretend to be son of Bifrid, brother of Al. Banner's my mother and runs my pal. It's McDaniels, not McDonald's. These rhymes are Daryl's. Don't give a fuck about Ronald's. I ran down my family tree, my mother, my father, my brother, and me. All I had to do was be Daryl McDaniels and represent the McDaniels family. When it came to, yo, you got to get on Billboard, yo, you got to get on the radio, to please other people, I thought I needed assistance. So Old English became my, my power. I forsaked my imagination for the Old English alcohol, which led to me needing Jack Daniels and Jim Beam to be my best friend instead of Daryl. That's when I lost it. Daryl would grow to enjoy performing, but not right away. The band's music, however, was blowing up and shows were necessary. I didn't want to do I didn't want to do this in front of you. This was just me in my basement. And after I did it to my enjoyment, I went upstairs, did my homework, and went to sleep. <laughs> now Run is telling me, D, you need to get up in the front with me. So the first time I ever performed with Run, I drunk a fucking half a fifth of um Southern Comfort and I hid by the speaker and I did my rhyme. And when I finished, Run said two things to me. He said, D, next time stand on the fucking stage in front of the audience when you say your rhyme and don't drink so much. Because uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared to death. Daryl kept drinking because it felt good. And he says because he wanted to keep pleasing people. I'm DMC in the place to be. I go, my whole thing is when I come to approach a record, I don't care. It could be about politics. It could be about love. I'm going to tell it from where Daryl is at. I got out of that. I got I to tell it from where Jay's at or where Run's at or from R- R- Russell's at or from where the radio station is at. No, I got to come from where I'm at to be order to, in order to dominate my um, surrounding and my universe. But I forgot about that when I started using that alcohol. Because I was scared. I was nervous. I was at anxiety. I just want to be in my basement writing my rhymes and going to bed. I don't want to be on fucking stage at fucking Harlem World. I don't want to be on stage at fucking Apollo. When Run DMC performed, they had a particular look. Black denim, black tracksuits, or black leather. They wore black, wide-brimmed hats. Daryl also wore these big, chunky black glasses. So if you wanted to really look in his eyes, you had to get past the big hat and the big glasses. The clothes were a statement. That's how the young people of the hip-hop culture dress. When they got in show business because of Rapper's Delight, our idols, see, the first rappers, Grandmaster Flash... Africa Bambada and the Furious Five, Treacherous Three, Fearless Four, Cold Crush Four, Funky Four Plus One. The fr- I'm not a pioneer. The true pioneers is everybody that w- was doing it before this recorded hip-hop bullshit. But when they got into show business, the first rappers had no rappers to look up to. So their idols was Rolling Stones, Rick James, and Parliament Funkadelic. So because they're thinking they're different now, we're in show business. We used to rap in the streets. Now I'm rapping for a record company. We got to change our appearance, who we are. So they were dressed like Parliament Funkadelic and the Rolling Stones. My idols 
was Grandmaster Flash number four. They made records. My idols was the graffiti artists. My idols was the breakdancers who wore Adidas suits, Pumas, and Adidas. So when I got a chance, when Run DMC got a chance to be in show business, we just dressed like the people we idolized growing up, which was the breakdancers, DJs, MCs, and graffiti writers. So when we did that on a video or album cover, the whole world thought it was something that we created that we owned. No, we was just dressing like all the other young people in it. And it didn't make me, it made me more visible. Without my glasses and my Run DMC hat, motherfuckers don't know who I am. But I put that shit on, it's over. But when it came to me getting on stage, it was like, it was perfect. Bruce Wayne puts on his bat suit. Steve Rogers puts on his captain. Tony Starks puts on his Iron Man suit. So when it was time for me to, to become the most powerful entity in the hip-hop universe, I put my glasses on, my hat, my Adidas suit, or my leather suit, and my Adidas. So that's my crime fighting for me. You know, it was my crime. It wasn't my rhyme writing outfit. It was my crime fighting outfit. Crash through walls, come through. My, my whole thing with what I do in hip hop is beat down negativity and all the bad guys. So in 1984, we did, we did the Run DMC self-titled album with a picture of me on it. So now everybody in St. John's who didn't know who the fuck I was sitting didn't know it's me now. <laughs> so it made it worse, but I didn't care because my own, the only time I felt good was when I was on the stage doing the things I felt good creating. I didn't ask for all this other bullshit, celebrity and this and being special and giving free shit. That shit upset me, but I didn't say nothing about it. I just drunk it away. His drink, Old English 800 malt liquor and lots of it. And as the fame grew, did you drink more and more? Yes, of course. And not only that, the bad thing about it, I had more money to get more shit. I sniffed so much coke, I smoked so much dust, but I, drinking was the thing that made me handle shit, so I thought. Now, hold on, though, because in It's Tricky, you say they offer coke and lots of dope, but we just leave it alone. We was lying. <laughs> and that just that came from a sense of responsibility okay. on Tricky... Um, you know, even the rappers before me, Grandmaster Cass said in an interview one day, I can't believe how we used to fucking celebrate fucking drugs. Everybody say blow, blow, say cocaine, cocaine. Like we used to celebrate that shit. But then when we saw that our music was appealing to motherfuckers, we said we can't promote that shit. You know what I'm saying? We can do it. Because I, I said, damn, if I say Adidas and we fucking got the whole world whirling Adidas... If I talk, I had a rhyme about old English. I was so fucking alcoholic, I had rhymes about it. But I knew not to put that shit on record. I had a whole rhyme about um the Beastie Boys had a song called Brass Monkey, which was something they took from me and flipped into Brass Monkey. Got this rhyme that's more than real. When you drink at Brass Monkey, here's how you feel. That became, in the early years, we was helping them write stuff. So I had a whole rhyme about Old English 800 malt liquor, the worst shit you could drink, like it was some good shit. 
I got this rhyme that's more than real. When you drink Old English, this is how you feel. You reach in the freezer for a 40 ounce or 32 ounce, whichever counts. You fill each bottle for the one that's cold. You gotta get it cold when you're drinking old gold. But you might take the one that's hot. You gotta get it hot, that's all they've got. $1.55, that is the price. That's not too much if you wanna get nice. You pay your money, walk out the door, then you say to yourself, I remember that store. You look around for a place to stand with a quarter old English inside your hand. You crack the quart, you put it to your lip. You tilt it slightly and you take a sip. Now, by now, you should know the deal because that one sip you already feel. I had whole fucking alcoholic rhymes. I got, my son is wearing my old English ring. I fucking put old English all on my tire covers. Like motherfuckers that wear Gucci and Louis Vuitton, I was wearing old English. I was worshiping, worshiping that shit. That shit was my god. Did you think you were making it work? That it was that you were just doing the right thing to feel as good as you could, as and the band was going great. Did you think you had it yeah, dialed I thought, in? I thought it was normal behavior because everybody drunk old English motherfuckers just wasn't drinking a case of forty ounces. See, that's I didn't see. I didn't know there's a fucking mental problem with that shit. Motherfuckers drunk, some motherfuckers drunk a 40 a day, half a foot. Some motherfuckers drink, might drink three a day. You know what I'm saying? It was known as the motherfuckers that drink Old English. I had to be the king of the Old English drinkers because I have a very addictive personality, a pleasing personality. I don't want to be the guy that's going to cause any trouble. I want people to like me. I want to be accepted. There are 12 40-ounce bottles in a case of Old English. So Dee was drinking 480 ounces a day. That's like 40 12-ounce cans of beer a day. And yeah, that will catch up with you. Not sustainable. In 91, because I was drinking a case of Old English a day, 40 ounces at that a day, then going out at night drinking um, rum and coke, um, um, screwdrivers and fuzzy navels, I got acute pancreatitis. In 91, I went to the doctor. The doctor said, admit this motherfucker. You can only have any nourishment intravenously for a month and a half. You ain't taking nothing down your fucking throat because we got to save your fucking pancreas. So I was diagnosed with acute pancreatitis. 93, I get out. I get admitted from the hospital. The doctor looks at me and says, son, you have two choices in life as of this day. You could drink and die or not drink and live. So cold turkey. Because every time I saw a rum and coke or a screwdriver 40, if I drink that shit, I die. D stops drinking, at least for a while, because addiction can be messy. Run DMC had started in 1983, and by 1993, they had been on a real roller coaster. Their 1984 debut album had gone gold. A year later, the King of Rock album went platinum. Raising Hell in 1985, triple platinum. Critics loved them. They're playing stadiums, Live Aid, Madison Square Garden. Then sales start to slip. So what happened with your mental health when the band started to become less popular, when, when it was a little more Nothing. I was fine. I was going home writing rhymes. I, I, I was just sitting around saying, well, we ain't making no records. And that's because, we was, um, that's because Russell was fighting the record company over royalties and all that other bullshit. I was fine. I can't, I can't nothing. I was hanging around with Chuck D. I was hang. I was hanging out around with Big Daddy Kane and Cool G Rap. Everybody that was successful. You know what I'm saying? I didn't have to be the popular one. I just wanted to get on stage and rhyme. You don't have to give me money. So that none of that bothered me. 
And it, that, that down period was good for me because then when we came back in 93, um, you know, after 88, we was just run DMC. Okay. 89, we survived a little bit. But then, you know, 90, 91, um, from 80, from 90 to like 93, we were the kings, though. L- let me make this straight. Let me get this clear. Ain't nobody was fucking with us. Look, we ain't on MTV. We ain't selling records. But no, not even Pac and Biggie wanted to go on stage after us because we would bust their ass. So that was understood. But as the business thing, the hot, we wasn't generating the crowds no more. We wasn't getting the money. I was fine with that because I didn't do it for that. I was just happy to get on stage and say my new rhyme, you know what I'm saying, whatever. But then in 1993 was a big comeback. In 1993, Pete Rock, one of the greatest producers in hip-hop, produced a song for us called Down With The King. So this was 93. Hip-hop had changed. Pac, Biggie, um, fucking Cypress Hill, Q-Tip, Naughty, like hip-hop was generating, killing. You know what I'm saying? Money, shows, arenas, everything. But prior to that, we was respected, but we wasn't participating anymore. So Pete Rock produced this record called Down With The King for us that did for Run DMC what Aerosmith, what, what Walk This Way did for Aerosmith in 86, Pete Rock and CL Smooth did for Run DMC in 93 with the Down With The King record. So that record put us back on the road, put us back on the chart. We was opening for Naughty By Nature, Marilyn Manson, Limp Bizkit, like we were back. But we were opening act. But we were so good at what we was doing, everybody kicked us off their tours and said, go do your own tour because we can't fuck with y'all. Down With The King hit number seven on Billboard, number one on the R&B and hip hop chart. It went gold. Money was coming in. Fame and respect. Right when that started happening is when, when, when Down With The King video dropped in 93 and the album dropped, I woke up the next day saying, I don't want to live no more. I want to kill myself. Hear where he goes from there in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses. Not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this program. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying it a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say and what not to say, stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Daryl McDaniel's bookish, nerdy kid from Queens becomes rap superstar, drinks like crazy, uses drugs. The group's fame peaks, drops off, then comes storming back, and... Right when that started happening is when, when, when Down With The King video dropped in 93 and the album dropped... I woke up the next day saying, I don't want to live no more. I want to kill myself. And I had no idea why. You just caught up with you, you think? I guess so, because in 91, I had to stop drinking. See, now, from 91 to 93, I was dealing with my real feelings. 
Now down with the king comes back out. We back on the road. We back on the charts. And now here's the killer thing. We get in 90s paydays. You know what I'm saying? In the 80s, we was getting the 80s paydays. Now these motherfuckers getting 150 to 200,000 a show. So we getting that because we got a hit record and, and people know how bad we are. So when all of that uh, material monetary success comes again, something inside me, because I'm not drinking anymore, just said, we can't do something's going on. With, and I know what it was. So now I want to kill myself. You have this feeling. And then uh, do you keep touring? Yeah, yeah. But I had to keep touring because here comes those feelings again. I knew I couldn't drink. But I got to keep touring because if I don't keep touring, running Jay going to be mad at me. So <laughs> there's that. Yeah, it's true. All those times um, I needed help. I didn't know that I could help myself. I always looked for it somewhere else. You don't understand how bad I felt. When you're feeling like that, there's only three things that you could do. You could hurt others. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you got all these kids and these people. Yeah, he's a very violent motherfucker. No, he's acting out because there's something y'all ain't fucking allow him to express. It's something that's bothering him and is dealing with it that y'all ain't using. You got to push the therapy book to the side. You got to push the goddamn Bible to the side. And you got to sit down and say, what's wrong with you? Tell me I won't judge you. But when, when you're feeling a certain way and nobody seems to understand you, and they all think you're weird and you're bugged out. and still You can't tell a person, don't be depressed. That's like me telling you, don't be hungry when you're hungry. It's the way I fucking feel. So there's nothing wrong with a person saying, I feel like killing myself. Because that's how they f- I felt like killing myself. You're feeling a certain way, so you act out and you want to hurt others because they don't understand how you feel. If you don't want to hurt others, you hurt yourself. You abuse drugs. Um, I know a lot of young girls and a lot of young dudes I speak to, they cut themselves. So you hurt others. Nah, I don't want to hurt nobody. You hurt yourself. If you don't want to hurt yourself, your only other alternative is to get out of here. So that's where I was at. I didn't want to hurt myself. I didn't want to hurt anybody else. So let me just kill myself and get this fucking feeling over with. Because at the time, even though I'm the mighty DMC, the king of rock, the most powerful entity, not just in hip-hop and fucking music, I didn't know at the time it's okay to go get help. There's people that'll help you. Don't be ashamed to talk about how you feel. I didn't know none of that, so I'd rather just fucking leave this fucking earth. That's where I was at. And were you trying to find a way and a time to do that that wouldn't make people mad at you? Yeah, yeah. I thought about shooting myself. We was in Austria or fucking Venice somewhere. I talk about this in my book. We was in, we was in Austria or Yugoslavia somewhere. I was going to go jump off the roof at the, the hotel roof. Um, when we was in Japan one time, I went to the fucking uh, hardware store by myself, but I didn't go with a translator. So the man behind the counter didn't know what the fuck. I, I need rat poisoning. I want to kill her. So I tried. But then this is what happened. I'm walking through with all these fucking feelings. I want to kill myself. I don't understand why I'm feeling like this. It's so uncomfortable. What the fuck did I do? I can't drink because if I drink, I want to kill myself. But then I could use that later. Because what happened after that, first of all, I found out, well, I'm depressed, but I don't know it. But something's wrong and people know something wrong, but I'm still going on and stuff like that. So then when I say I'm really going to kill myself, this is what happens. I say, okay. If I kill myself, people are going to know the Run DMC story. They're going to know what me, Run, and Jay did. First to go gold, first to go platinum, first on the cover, Rolling Stone. Everything that hip-hop is doing is because of me, Run, and Jay, and what we did to represent this beautiful culture. 
But they don't know about Daryl, the little boy who's no different from any other little boy or girl on the face of the earth. At this point, Daryl doesn't know how much longer he will be alive. And he decides to try one more creative project. So I said, okay, just in case I die tomorrow, let me write a book. And in the book, I wanted to put, yo, this is Daryl McDaniels. I was born May 31st, 1964. And I realized that's all I know about my birthday. So I called my mom's up and I'm like, yo, mom, I'm writing this book. I just want to know a couple of um, details to make it more interesting for the reader. How much did I weigh? What time I was born? What hospital? She told me. Hung up the phone. An hour goes by. She calls back with my father. They call back and say, we have something else to tell you. I go, what is it? They go, you was a month old when we brought you home and you're adopted, but we love you. Bye. And they hang up. So I'm a depressed wreck that just found out that he was adopted at age 35, which makes me realize, oh, my God, I'm not even Bifid and Banner's son. Everything that I was living with a lie. So I didn't know what to do with that information. I didn't know you could get help, get therapy, go sit down with people. It's okay to talk about your feelings. I'm not supposed to be drinking, but I didn't pick up 40s. I pick up fifths of Jack Daniels and Jim Beam. <laughs> when I got told I was adopted, I started drinking again. I told my wife to fucking validate um, not addressing my true feelings. I'm drinking this way to celebrate the newfound um, part of my missing identity. My wife, she looked at me and said, motherfucker, you dr you're drinking because you can't emotionally handle the fact that your parents just told you you was adopted. So when I found out that I was adopted, I started drinking again in 2000 for four years straight. Jack Daniels and Jim Beam were my best friends. Did you think you were celebrating? Yeah. Well, I tried to rationalize that. But did you believe it? That was a lie. No, no. I, I didn't. I was drinking to not deal with what my true feeling was. But for my delight of myself, that's why, you know, I had to tell my wife something. At any point, did you consider, hey, this is trauma. This is depression. This is a, a mental disorder. No, no, I didn't know what that shit was yet. You didn't know? I just knew I'm drinking again. And it, it, now here's what's bad about the drinking. I felt good when I was drunk, but when that shit wore off, I felt worse than I felt the day before. And it just kept getting worse and 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 worse. Daryl was still doing the shows with Run DMC. Didn't want to make anyone mad. He'd been told if he drank, he would die. He found out he was adopted, which messed him up further. Drinking again. Death seems imminent. One of the things that made me say I'm definitely going to kill myself because at the time I was living in Jersey and it's easier to fly out of Newark. So the travel agent flies me into JFK. So I'm already feeling like a piece of shit. And that one little thing just angered me so much. And this fucking fucking Jada, this is proof I don't need to be here. So I get in the car. And the driver, you know, he comes, he's polite. Hey, Mr. DMC, I'm taking you to Wayne, New Jersey. Yeah, it's cool. So I get in the car, and as we're driving out of um, JFK, I notice the guy keep looking at me in his rearview mirror. And every time I would look up at him, he'd turn his head. So we played that game for about three lights, and on the final light, I said, um, I said I'm going to say something to him. I'm going to say, yo, man, what's up with you? And he just turns around to me, and he says, yo, Mr. DMC, please don't tell my boss 
I'm not supposed to do this. But then he says this, your music got me through some of the worst times in my life. I had a fucked up childhood, but I was okay when I would go in my room and listen to your Raising Hell album. That shit got me through some of the roughest times. Can I please get an autograph? And I'm like, oh, you know, I get asked that all the time. I'm like, oh, sure. I say, not only that, you could get a picture. So he's open now. So because I'm a rapper, he says, yo, can I turn the radio on? I'm like, yeah, you can turn it on. He turns it to Hot 97. Now, at that time in my life, I'm trying to kill my fucking self. The last thing I want to hear is fucking hip hop. You know what I'm saying? I'm losing my voice. I'm fucking I'm depressed, but I don't know it. And that's the last thing I want to hear because I'm not going to be here to do that shit. Turn it to any other station cut than that one. He turns it to Light FM here in New York City. And on the radio was that piano sound and that voice going, Spend all your time waiting for that second chance. The song was Angel by Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin. When I heard Sarah's voice in that fucking piano, something in me said, yo, DMC, it may be fucked up to be alive, but as long as something this beautiful exists, it's okay to be living for right now. So all I did for one year was listen to Sarah McLachlan's song, right? Over and over and over and over and over. For one whole year. What did it do to you? Like, what, what was so powerful about it that you needed it, it, it that much? It made much? me feel better than rapping. It made me feel better than fucking drinking. <laughs> I can't describe it. It just made me feel better, and it made me happy. It made me feel good. Was it the content of the lyrics, like what she was saying, or was it her voice? Yeah, or- yeah but just certain shit when she says, in the dark, cold hotel room. Because at that time, I, I alienated. One of the worst things that I did when I first went into my depression, even though I didn't know it was depression, was I thought, I'm the only one in the world that feels like this. And running Jay can't understand. Nobody around me can understand what a revelation of finding out that you're adopted at 35 is like. Because all they could say is, suck it up, motherfucker. Bifurn and Banner are your parents. You had a good fucking life. Yes, I know that. But don't you know how that revelation... So when we would travel during all of this time, when my group would go to the Hilton, i go to the Marriott. If they would go to the Marriott, I would go to the Hilton. So the worst thing that I did, I didn't notice until I went to therapy and rehab, the worst thing that I did was isolate myself. You know what I'm saying? But I, I, I didn't know any better. The worst thing, I, now I'm in a hotel all by myself about to do a fucking show I don't want to fucking do with these fucking feelings that I don't understand that's going on. These motherfuckers don't know how I feel because motherfuckers, they just told me I was adopted at 35. He listened to Angel over and over, wherever he went, every day, that one song. And after a full year of that, he went to a party at music executive Clive Davis's house in L.A. Everybody's showing me love. Buster Rhymes, Alicia Keys, Stevie Wonder, everybody. Who walks in? The lady that made this record that I've been listening to for the last whole year, Sarah McLaughlin. So I get my wits together. I walk over to, 
And as I'm coming over to her, she's like, yo, run DMC. I love you guys. She starts going, it's tricky to rock around. Walk this way. And she hits the B-boy stance. I love some run DMC. So in my mind, I'm like, yo, CD, even Sarah McLachlan likes your record. That's a good reason not to kill yourself. And I just look at her and say, Miss McLachlan, I just want to tell you I've been listening to this song for the last year. The name of the song is Angel. You sound like an angel. People say you're an angel, but you're not an angel to me. You're God. This is the only thing that keeps me going every day. This record kept me alive. I think about killing myself and all of that. And I went through the whole thing, and she looked at me, and she was like, thank you for telling me that, Daryl. That's what music is supposed to do. Shakes my hand and walk away. A while after that, he calls Sarah asks her to sing on a new track he's putting together. She says sure, invites him to come to her home recording studio in Vancouver. On the way from the airport to the house... I turn to my manager and say, yo, Eric, if I die tomorrow, yo, man, stop talking like that. I don't want to hear that. I'm saying, no, 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 listen to me, man. If I die tomorrow, yo, stop talking. I don't hear you. We playing that game. He's grabbing his ears, and I snatch his hand. Now, motherfucker, listen to me. If motherfuckers ask me what was the greatest thing that ever happened to DMC during his career, it's that I went to make a record with Sarah McLachlan. You got that, motherfucker? Yeah, I got it. I just love imagining DMC calling his manager a motherfucker as they drive through Vancouver on the way to Sarah McLaughlin's house. Dee and Sarah record Just Like Me. It's a reworking of Cats in the Cradle retold about adoption. Afterwards, Sarah tells Dee that she too was adopted. I gotta pave a way to a brighter day Cause it's really plain and simple when it came to me There's a lot of people just like me There's a whole lot just like me In 2002, Jam Master Jay, Jason Mizell, was shot to death in a Queens recording studio, a murder that remains unsolved. A couple years later, Daryl McDaniels finally got help. The rehab place I went, it was a place called Sierra Tucson in Arizona. And it wasn't one of those places where they just sober you up and throw you back out. I remember sitting in a rec room and they was talking about when Britney Spears went to rehab. But then she went shopping and we was all in there. We couldn't leave. We was like, how the hell she do that? I want to be in that place. What the fuck? Like, yo. But um, it was in there when I learned about d- depression, suppressed emotions, um, a- anxiety, low self-esteem, and all of that stuff. So it was rehab. When I went to get help is when I found out something that I do that. Like I said, when I went in the, when they, in the intake room, and when they, you know, they bring you in, they ask you when the last time you drunk, this and that. They give you the physical, this and that. And then they take you to the next room and they sit down and the person comes in. It was like a, it was like a, a school class. And up on the board was the uh, 10 characteristics of an addictive personality. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm all of those. And the lady was like, well, that's the first road to success to admit. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? And I just started admitting I do that. Oh, I do that all the time. Oh, yeah, that's why I drink too. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it was when I went to rehab and therapy when I realized, oh, shoot, I was depressed all this time. And with a lot of life experience behind him, professional help with him, and a real drive to figure things out, Daryl started to unlock his own mind. Well, when I went into therapy, my, 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 my therapist said there were certain things that you were doing. Um, the drinking... Uh, the quietness, 
you know, not speaking up. You know, I probably had anxiety and low self-esteem and all of that stuff. But the old English kept me from feeling like that. His therapist explained that the drinking was connected to emotions he was suppressing. He was making himself numb, trying to feel nothing. He was denying that he had opinions, devaluing who he was as a person. One of the first questions my therapist asked me in therapy was like, Daryl, during your career at Run DMC, did Run DJ Russell or anybody at the record company ever do anything to make you mad? And I sat there, I was like, nah. My therapist looked at me and said, motherfucker, he used those words, you a goddamn motherfucking liar. And he looked me in the eye and right then and there, man, in 1985, they did, and everything came pouring out. So yeah, I had the depression or the seed was planted way back when, but I would never learn that because I was suppressing those emotions and true feelings with alcohol. You were using a depressant to address your depression. Yeah, which is the worst thing that you could ever do. Daryl McDaniels has come to believe that his mental problems can be traced to his adoption. There's a book called The Primal Wound that argues adoption is traumatic for the baby because a bond between mother and child has been broken, and that can lead to depression, anxiety, and other problems later on. Primal wound theory has its critics who say it's speculative and lacks scientific evidence. And of course, our show neither endorses nor rejects it. For Daryl, it explained a lot. I'm with my birth mother for nine months. You're too fucking young to decipher what the fuck is going on. But mentally, spiritually, physically, and emotionally, something happens when those babies are given away. So when I got into rehab... They put the 10 um, characteristics of an addictive personality on a wall. I was all of them shits. So that comes from the need to people, please. I don't want to be given away deep down subconsciously. You know what I'm saying? So instead of, you know, if I speak up in this fucking meeting, Jay and Run might not like me. I don't want to be given away again. You know what I'm saying? So let me just drink and not say, I don't want to cause no trouble. There's so many fucking mental things that made me have to do what I did. And when I got into rehab and therapy, I learned about dopamine. I learned about the way your brain functions. I learned about um, anxiety and, and what, what, what you know, I'm no different from the sex addict or the gambling addict and, you know, all of those rushes and stuff like that. Me, I wanted to keep that shit going to mask the uncomfortable true feeling instead of cursing everybody out and shooting motherfuckers. Daryl told that story about that Sarah McLachlan song as part of the Moth storytelling series back in 2011. And back then, his voice sounded different. He had been diagnosed with spasmodic dysphonia, a condition that causes involuntary movements in the vocal cords. I was laying there, and I summed up everything that was mean. I was unhappy to the point where I was so depressed. And out of that, I became very suicidal. I told Daryl that he sounds different now. His voice sounds under control. But all of those doctors looked at me and said, yo, there's nothing physically fucking wrong with your throat. We don't know what to tell you. But the worst that we could say, spasmodic dysphonia is um, involuntary reflexes of the vocal cords. So there's abduction and adduction. They said that I had both where nothing could come out. And it felt like I was choking in there. But that's because I wasn't letting my real truth out. So what happens mentally and emotionally will manifest itself physically. I went through that. 
But now I'm talking my truth and not ashamed of it. Because with anything that anybody's going to, whoever's going to listen to this, me being DMC, whether you believe it or not, the greatest rapper MC in the world, universe, and in history, if you remove guilt and shame, you remove the pain. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you, man. Thank you for even being courageous enough to do something like this so that other people can feel that they are not alone and it's okay to be people like us. You and me together, my friend. We're doing it. Thank you. DMC publishes comics under the imprint of Daryl Makes Comics. DMC, get it? He's the author of a 2016 memoir, also 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide. My memoir is coming out in May. It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. It doesn't have anything about my rap career because I've never had one. It does tell about my past and what led to my mission to pry open the conversation about mental health. Also, stories about a suicide survivor group that met in a funeral home, which was grim and darkly funny. You can pre-order that at hilariousworld.org. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Our digital producer is Christina Lopez. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. She had a huge career in hip-hop under the name Queen Latifah. Not really. Our intern is Ariana Wilson. Recording engineer in New York, Danny DJK Kaiser. The recording engineer in St. Paul and technical director for this episode, John Miller. Big thank you to Jackson Musker for booking help this season. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting the conversation can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say or not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook, too. A lot of great conversation happening over there with your fellow thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. What if I was to tell you I'm Paiachi? This great big smile is just for show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know